Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word that you may grow by it. Desire it like a newborn babe. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that by these he has given us uh, precious and magnificent promises, that we may uh, by these partake of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust." Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we're thankful we have this time to study your word, to reflect upon its significance in our own lives. Our topic is one that is difficult for many people. Uh, Understanding what it means to forgive is often clouded by many different thoughts we have, exceptions that come to our mind and ways in which we can avoid it. But, Father, we need to have the um, objectivity that the Holy Spirit gives us as we study your word to understand that this is very much also a part of the fruit of the Spirit in terms of loving one another. We need to understand what it is and what it is not and what you have said about it because it is central to a Christian life and Christian walk. So, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes about our own shortcomings and difficulties in regard to applying what the Word says. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Of course, our passage, main passage, is Ephesians 4.32, but we're looking at some of the other key passages where we're taught about uh, forgiveness, that we are to forgive one another. The title I have for this morning is that forgiveness is not an emotion. And I think that's a problem a lot of people have in applying forgiveness is because their emotions get in the way. And it's you may not say it this clearly, but you're saying, well, I'll forgive them when I emotionally feel like it. Well, it's not an emotion. So if that's your thinking, you won't ever get there. It's a mental attitude. Forgiveness is an application of love. We've seen time and time again that love is often misunderstood as as an emotion, but it's not an emotion. There may be emotional elements to it, but biblical love is a mental attitude. You cannot command an emotion. These are commands for us to forgive one another, to love one another. And so, therefore, we have to just understand more about uh, what the Scripture is talking about. We've had a definition given last time that that forgiveness is basically the gracious act of releasing, canceling, or eradicating from our thinking the personal hurt and desire for retribution, giving it up to the responsibility of God. 
It's God's responsibility to take care of other people's sinfulness and the consequences of it. It is not our responsibility. And therefore, we have to turn it over to the Lord. We have to put it in our hands. In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham asked a rhetorical question which pertains. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And that question is asked expecting an affirmative action, an affirmative answer. And that is that, yes, God knows all things, so he knows all the facts. Nothing ever escapes his attention. God is absolutely perfect within his righteousness. And so God is always going to do the right thing. And God is always just. He always applies that perfect standard of his righteousness to every situation. And God is also gracious. And in the same way that we wish to hold others accountable for some of their actions that have hurt us, we also must face the fact that we've done things that have hurt others, and we're very grateful for God's grace to us in forgiving us. And so that should apply to others as well. But that doesn't mean it's it's easy for any of us. So as we have seen in our previous study last time, in our study of God's forgiveness of David, that forgiveness may or may not ameliorate consequences. We saw that the legal consequence for David's sin was capital punishment. He committed two capital crimes. He committed adultery, number one, and he conspired to have Uriah the Hittite murdered, number two. So legally, he was uh, culpable of those capital crimes, not just sins, but capital crimes. And by the law, he should have been executed. But God himself commuted that sentence, which makes us understand that there are times when God does not hold us accountable in that sense for the sins we commit. In fact, if God gave us retribution for every single sin we commit, uh, most of us would probably have been in the grave a long time ago. God does not always, in fact, it's infrequent that God, uh, God has us go through the consequences of our sinful decisions, but he does at times. Don't think it's permissiveness. I pointed that out last time. Forgiveness is not permissiveness. Forgiveness does not mean you're validating what the other person has done. Uh, forgiveness does not mean that that you're absolving them of maybe all consequences in terms of your personal relationship. Uh, that was the point that I was making last time is God uh, brings certain consequences into David's life as a result of, of his sin. And so there are consequences, and sometimes there are things that people do to us that uh, may mean that we no longer will enjoy the same level of friendship with them. They may not even be part of our lives anymore because there are some things that just cross such a serious line that, that that's part of the consequence, but we still forgive them. And that, because forgiveness has to do with our mental attitude. Anything less than forgiveness, the, the opposite is really mental attitude sins. 
of retribution, anger, resentment, bitterness, the things that Paul talks about there in Ephesians uh, 4.31, that we are to set those things aside. So you have a choice between gracious and not being gracious. Your choice is really a choice between being arrogant or being humble. There's no middle road. You can't be a little arrogant and a little humble. You know, it's one or the other. And when we are taking God's justice into our own hands, we are really being arrogant. We're denying the creator-creature distinction and saying, I have the right to determine what the right punishment is because I'm really omniscient. That's just blatant arrogance. We never put it that way. I like to put it that way to make sure you understand that that, 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 the lies we all tell ourselves, the rationalizations we all tell ourselves are just that. They're rationalizations and they're lies, and we're just deceiving ourselves, and that's part part of arrogance. So we always have to remember that we are always expected by God to take the high road. And that means that we are always going to be gracious and kind and forgiving. But that doesn't mean that you just become a doormat. That doesn't mean that they, you allow people to take advantage of you all the time. And that doesn't mean a lot of the things that people say. Americans have, and maybe it's true of Western civilization, I don't know, but I know that most Americans have a terrible time understanding punishment, understanding retribution, understanding justice, understanding forgiveness, uh, they think forgiveness means, you know, you just let everybody do whatever they want to do. They they can't understand humility either, yet all of these are really outgrowths of the fruit, fruit of the Spirit. So it's important for us to take the time to go through these issues related to just what does it mean and not mean in terms of forgiving one another. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor and evil speaking, so bringing in the sins of the tongue that often accompany our anger towards someone who has mistreated us, abused us, done things to intentionally harm us, things that may have consequences that we have to deal with for the rest of our lives. And so for the rest of our lives, we're constantly being tested as to whether that forgiveness we claim that we have is really true. So we are to put these away along with all malice and be kind to one another. Very positive attribute to be kind. You just can't. We can't do that with some people. People come to mind. Classifications of people come to my mind. I won't mention those. But we have real trouble with that. And so we are to stop and think about it. Christian life is a life of thinking, not a life of emoting. We're to be tender-hearted and forgiving of one another. And as we studied the last couple of times, that is a word charizomai, which means it's emphasizing the graciousness. It comes from the root word meaning grace. It emphasizes the graciousness of forgiveness. That means, yes, we admit they don't deserve it. Neither do you and I. But Christ paid for all the sins on the cross. And we are to follow that pattern of divine forgiveness. We've seen that these two words that are given, afiemi, means to release, pardon, or cancel, even cancel a debt. And that's true of charizomai. The difference is the contrast between the act of forgiveness, afiemi, 
and the attitude underlying forgiveness in charizomai. So I've pointed out four categories of forgiveness in Scripture. The first I call forensic forgiveness, and this is seen in Colossians 2, 12 to 14. If you carefully work your way through those participles and the grammar, is that initially God cancels the debt of sin at the cross. He nailed it to the cross. So it happened historically in time, in A.D. 33, and it was the cancellation of the legal penalty of sin for everyone. So that is also a basis for understanding the doctrine of unlimited atonement, that Christ paid the sin penalty for all. But that doesn't make a person saved. As I pointed out, there are several problems that we have as fallen creatures. The first is the legal sin penalty, which is resolved at the cross. The second is we're still born uh, spiritually dead. So something has to make us spiritually alive. And when we are born spiritually dead, we lack perfect righteousness. Well, because we don't have perfect righteousness, we can't have a relationship with God, so God must give us righteousness. So those last two only happen when a person trusts in Christ as Savior. And at that instant and simultaneously, he makes us alive together with Christ, and he imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. God the Father imputes that to us so that we're declared righteous. That's what it means to be justified by faith faith in the promise of God. It is the object of faith, not the act of faith, that is important. The third is our experiential forgiveness. I talk about this so frequently, I'm not spending a lot of time on that. And this is our forgiveness before God as we live out our Christian life. We either walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, or we walk according to the sin nature. And when we sin, we have to have a way of recovery, and that is to simply admit or acknowledge our sin to the Lord. Confession is a legal concept. If you've ever had a traffic ticket and gone to court to to, uh, pay the fine, then you know what it means to confess or admit your guilt. They really don't care how you feel about it. That's not the issue. You can go in there and cry and have remorse or whatever. That's probably going to depress the judge and make it worse than uh, impressing him. So we go to the Father and we just admit it because it's already paid for by Christ on the cross. And we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So this morning we're looking at this aspect, the relational forgiveness, learning what it means to forgive one another. And so what we have to do is recognize that all sin is a violation of God's standard. David prayed in his confessional psalm, Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. The definition of sin is that a person has violated your standards. I just want to make sure you were paying attention. No, sin is not violating your standards. It's not even violating the standards of the federal government. It's not violating the standards of certain social groups here who want to redefine sin in terms of political positions. 
Sin is a violation of the character of God. That's why when we sin, it's a violation of God's character. Now, there are crimes. That's another category. A crime is probably a sin, but a sin is not necessarily a crime. Chew on that for a while. So we have to uh, forgive one another. As God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us, be imitators of God. So we have to recognize that when somebody sins against the Lord and it splatters all over us, that we need to forgive them and not hold it against them. That doesn't mean there aren't consequences. I keep having to say that because that's where our human viewpoint takes us every time, that we want, we're letting them get away with it. We want to assume that is the human viewpoint definition of forgiveness that runs through our culture. That forgiveness means permiss, uh, permissiveness. But God is righteous. Psalm 111.3 says, His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endures forever. God is perfect righteousness. So He's always going to do the right thing. And and we just have the height of arrogance telling, thinking that we can tell God what He ought to do. This is how your justice should be in this case. I wonder how many people... Just thinking out loud, I wonder how many people have ever made that comment about myself or about you. Lord, they've just done this to me, and you need to get them back in this way. See, that's why we need to be very careful about some of these things. So we talked about positional forgiveness. This happens, first of all, when we trust Christ as Savior. In a baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, we are placed in Christ. We are made alive together with Him. We are raised and we are seated together with Him in the heavenlies, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. And as part of that, we are forgiven of our sins. That's our position, our legal position in Christ. And so we stand forgiven. Now, a lot of people have trouble with this next part because they, they don't like being confessing sin. It reminds them too much of what they've done. But when we are to walk by the Spirit, if we are out of fellowship, then we need to confess sin. That's 1 John 1, 9. So in divine forgiveness, since that's the pattern, God completely removes the sin as a hindrance to our relationship to Him. But there may still be consequences. There were consequences to David's sin that ran for the rest of his life. His family was completely disrupted and fragmented as a consequence of his sin. But God cast these sins behind him. They are removed completely, so he's not going to bring them up again. So it's an act totally based upon his character and it's undeserved and unmerited. Three misconceptions I've pointed out. It's not permissiveness. It's not indulgence. And it does not necessarily remove consequences. That is so important. That just, because those three things, we think it's permissive, we think it's indulgent, and we think God's going to remove all the consequences. But that's not what the Bible teaches. So let's turn to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. 
in Matthew's gospel, forgiveness plays a major role. In um, Matthew 6, 9, and um, also verses 14 and 15, and also in chapter 9, again, forgiveness is at the heart of what Jesus is teaching, as it is in Matthew chapter 18. And the passage that I want to look at is the passage from verse 21 down to the end of the chapter, 21 to 35. Now, I have gone through this in my Matthew study, and this whole chapter covered about five or six lessons. So for more detail, questions you have, I suggest you go back and and listen to those uh, listen to those lessons again. Uh, that will help you in many many ways. But we have to uh, we have to look at this context. Remember, context is everything. Without context, you're just left with a con job. You take the text out of context, you're left with con. And that's what happens. Most people just go in and they take, take a passage out of context and then they put what, you know, read into it whatever they want to read into it. So the key question here comes up in Matthew 18.1. And the disciples come to Jesus and they want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom. They're having conversations about themselves as to who's going to be seated closer to Jesus when they get into the kingdom. Who's going to have the best position? Do you think that is grace orientation or arrogance? So they're out of line. They're just, it's all about them. Which one's going to be in a position of arrogance? So what's the opposite of arrogance? It's humility. So the chapter starts talking about humility. Without humility, you're going to have a difficult time forgiving others. It's interesting how this whole episode that starts in uh, the first verse and goes to the end of the chapter, this is one of those unusual places where the chapter division actually incorporates the whole, the whole episode. And so we see this emphasis on forgiveness with the focus on humility. And Jesus uses a child as a training aid as his illustration of what he is going to teach. Now, the problem is the way they view children is not the way a lot of people in our culture view children. We look at children as innocent as they should be, and that's what our thinking is. And I've said for years, a brand-new baby just looks so cute to so many people, and it's just a sin nature that's wrapped up in the flesh. And its heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. And we have to have that reality as parents because a parent's job is to drive that out of them and to train them to control uh, those lust patterns. And, uh, and that's why you need to get those kids saved early. You start giving them the gospel when they're still in diapers, still not able to understand English, because the more they hear you talk, the more you're going to be formatting their brain cells so that they can comprehend and understand language. And the language that you're teaching them when you're reading the Bible to them and when you're giving them the gospel are the words of God. That's a great way to start. You don't want to have them watching a lot of cartoons on TV or a lot of the other garbage. So many parents use a television as a uh, babysitter that you're formatting their brains with a lot of human viewpoint and a lot of evil. 
So it's better to start with the Word, get it. You can get CDs with people reading. You can get them oriented towards kids, all kinds of things. But in their culture, a child had no position, no significance socially. He had no rank, no privilege. He was a nobody. And it wasn't until he reached adulthood that he had any significance. And so when Jesus is saying that uh, you need to be like a little child, in verse 3 he says, um, which I don't have a slide of, he says, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children... Now that tells us something because that tells us that from this point on, talking about he's talking about his disciples because they're converted, but they need to become like a little child. They need to quit focusing on what their rights are and start focusing on how they are to serve the Lord. And so that's the point that he makes through this whole section, and he emphasizes it in verse 4 where he says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives one little child like this, that is one that is humbled, not he's not talking physically about this little child. He's talking about the one who is converted and humbles himself. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So he's not talking about every kid. He's talking about the ones that are humble, that the, that represents what the disciples are supposed to be in terms of, of humility. And so he goes on to talk about some warnings about uh, uh, offending these kids or l- leading them into sin. And... Um, and as a result of that, there would be punishment. Now, I'm not going to go into this. You can go back to, I put it up, uh, that you go back to Matthew lessons 104, 105, 106, 107 in there. And I go through a discussion of these terms like eternal fire and Gehenna and what that means. And this is not talking about the eternal lake of fire. This is talking about... Um, this is talking about temporal punishment when it because it comes out of the use of gay Hinnom, which is the valley of Hinnom, which is on the south southern part of of Jerusalem at that time, and this is where the Israelites had worshipped these fertility idols where they sacrificed their children as living sacrifices burnt alive in the arms of Moloch. And so God brought punishment on them, according to Jeremiah, by bringing the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians in to destroy first the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom. It was temporal punishment in history. So then he goes on and he talks about the the parable of the lost sheep. And there in Luke 19, 10 and following, it talks about uh, the parable of the lost sheep. But there's three parables there. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Now, there are some people who, when they hear that somebody is lost in Scripture, they go to the wrong conclusion that that means they're not saved. But in those analogies, they are saved because the lost sheep belong to the shepherd already. He just wandered off. That's like a believer who belongs to the father, but he wanders off. 
You have the lost coin that belonged to the widow, but she lost it, so it wanders off and it is recovered. And then you have the uh, parable of the prodigal son. He's lost, but he comes back. He's He was the father's son. He's still the father's son, even when he's off in the pigsty and he's living in, in uh, carnality and disobedience. And then when he comes back, he's still the father's son. But it's talking about restoration and recovery, and it's not ta- and forgiveness. It's not talking about um, it's not talking about getting saved. So here he uses that illustration to emphasize that 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 the the father wants to uh, save the ones that have wandered off. Then we get down to dealing with the sinning brother, still dealing with someone who has um, done some action that is wrong, that is publicly known in the assembly, and how do you deal with it if they are not willing to forgive or be forgiven, not willing to uh, correct their behavior? And so it's still dealing with humility, and it's still dealing with forgiveness. And then that brings us down to the passage that we're looking at now in Matthew 18:21. Having heard all of this, Peter's scratching his head, and he's saying, Well, now, how many times do I need to forgive this person? They just repeatedly offend me, hurt me, over and over again. How many times should I forgive them how many infractions uh, uh, times that they commit infractions should I forgive them and so Peter comes to him and says Lord how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him and then he volunteers up to seven times well that's pretty generous in a Jewish culture as we will see because in a Jewish culture uh, that was not the norm. It's three times and fourth strike, you're out. And so Jesus replies to him and says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, John 13, 14, and 15, Jesus is going to talk about or illustrate forgiveness again, and he's talking to Peter again. And there it's the issue of washing Peter's feet, which is a picture of cleansing from sin and forgiveness from sin. And I've taught on this many times that Jesus uh, takes a position of a servant in the upper room as they're preparing to observe the Seder meal, the Passover meal. And he takes a basin of water and he goes around. He's washing the feet of the disciples. And he comes to Peter and Peter, filled with arrogance and self-importance, said, no, 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 Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord says, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you will have no part with me. Now, we don't really understand that word part. And so some people think that means he wouldn't be saved, but that's not what's going on here. The word translated part has, is meros, and it has to do with, with a, a share in inheritance. And so Jesus will go on to explain to him in that context that, that he needs to wash his feet so that he can have a, an in part or share in the inheritance. So Peter then says, well, then just wash me from head to toe. And and the Lord says, I don't need to do that either because you're already washed. Everyone is here and is already washed and clean except for one, and that referred to Judas. 
In Greek, there are two different words here. You have to understand them. The word translated, uh, uh, translated wash and bath rather is, is the word luo, which means a complete bath, a total immersion. Whereas the word translated washing the feet, washing a body part is a different Greek word. It's the word nipto. So if you're going to go in and your parents are going to tell you to wash your hands or you're going to tell your kids to go wash your hands, you would use the word nipto. But if it's bedtime and their custom is to take a bath before they go to bed, then you would use the word luo. So Jesus said the disciples have all been washed. They've all had a bath. They've all been, in other words, completely cleansed. That's their positional salvation, their positional forgiveness. All but one, that's Judas. But he's illustrating that even though you have been washed from head to toe, you still need to be nipped You still have to be have those sins you've committed what you've done and where you've gone during the day, you have sinned and you need to have that that cleansing so that you'll be completely clean again. That imagery comes out of the Old Testament in the uh, in the uh, temple service, in the tabernacle service, that there was a labor that was put out in the courtyard. And when the priest came in, the first thing he would do is wash his hands and wash his feet. But when the priest was originally ordained, he was anointed, he washed one time. For the rest of the priesthood, and that doesn't mean he didn't take any more baths, but ritually, he was washed from head to toe at the beginning of his ministry, just as you and I were washed, completely cleansed from sin positionally at the beginning of our spiritual life, our Christian life. But when we continue to sin, we have to go in like the high priest did. We have to wash our hands and our feet. And that's a picture of temporal, of our cleansing, uh, for our continued fellowship with God. So Jesus is emphasizing that. So the focal point of this whole foot washing thing is that he is illustrating the forgiveness of sin by washing feet and hands. And so then he says, after he had done this, he says, you all also ought to wash one another's feet. So if him washing their feet is a picture of forgiveness and he says, do it to one another, what's he saying? He's saying you need to forgive one another of of sins. And then he goes on at the end of chapter 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are disciples, that you have love for one another. Forgiveness is part of love. And if you're not forgiving one another, then you're not demonstrating that you are a disciple of Christ, because that's the sign of someone who is a learning, growing believer. A disciple is not the same as a believer. A believer is someone who's trusted Christ. A disciple is someone who says, no, I want to go on beyond that and learn something and be a student of the Scriptures. So there's a distinction between being a disciple and being a believer. So Jesus says that all will know that you are my disciples. He doesn't say so that all will know that you are believers. That's important. Because in Lordship salvation, if you're not forgiving one another, then that means you're probably not really a believer yet. You don't have the right kind of faith. And that's the problem. Scripture never distinguishes having genuine faith, sincere faith, true faith, It just says faith, 
no qualifications. You believe, you understand the gospel, and you trust Christ for your salvation. Now, at the time in the first century, in the second temple period, rabbinical temp, uh, teaching only required forgiveness three times. Rabbi uh, Jose B, uh, Ben Yehuda said, if a man commits a transgression the first, second, and third time, he's forgiven. The fourth time, he's not forgiven. Rabbi Eliezer, son of Rabbi Jose, said, if one sins and repents and continues uprightly, he is forgiven before, this, uh, before he stirs from the spot. But if one says, I shall sin and then repent, he is forgiven up to three times, but no more. See, they had a problem with prebound at that time also. That's one of Jim's favorite terms. Some people just think, well, they can confess their sin ahead of time, and so like like a rebound on the basketball court, they just prebound. I'll confess it now, and then it's taken care of. So <clears throat> maybe maybe Peter got his idea from Proverbs twenty four sixteen for a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. So he says, Lord... How many times should we forgive our, our brother? Seven times? He's so much more gracious than the Pharisees. But the Lord says it's more than that. But in Luke 17, in a parallel passage, uh, Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles say, Man, Lord, give us more faith. If the same person offends you the same way seven times in a day, that's a pretty busy day. And and so at the end of the day, you're just tired of it. I'm not going to be put up with this nonsense anymore. But Jesus is going to say, do it 490 times. Wait a minute. So that's what Jesus says. Now, he's not being literal, literal, 70 times 7, 490 times. He's emphasizing 7 is the number of completion, so he's emphasizing really as many times in your life as he does this, forgive him or her. Here's an analogy. How many times are you going to forgive your kids for doing stupid things, wrong things? Most parents will forgive their kids till the day they die, either one of them. But you're, that's what you ought to be, how you ought to be treating other believers in Christ. That's, that's being gracious. You know they certainly don't deserve it. You're not letting them get away with it either. So we're back to our passage that to let all these mental attitude sins go away and we are to be kind to one another. We're to be generous. We're to be gracious because that's how God is with us. Well, we're not through with Matthew 18 yet. He's, Jesus is going to illustrate this with a parable. And in the parable, he starts off and he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, why is he talking about the kingdom of heaven? Because that's how it started. The disciple is saying, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
The kingdom of heaven is a reference to the messianic kingdom, the literal 1,000-year rule and reign of Christ on the earth. Uh, today we have so many people who go around, well, we're doing this for the kingdom and that for the kingdom, and, and everything's about the kingdom, and they don't know anything about eschatology. That means prophecy. They think we're in some form of the kingdom today, and we're not. The kingdom doesn't have a king if we're here. The kingdom is going to have part of the curse rolled back. As I've been observing things lately. I think that problems with the curse are increasing and not decreasing. We live in a fallen, corrupt world, and despite the desire of a Jewish people that they're going to repair the world, and I saw a um, reference yesterday to a Reformed Covenant con- Bible conference up in Pennsylvania that was also, it wasn't titled Repairing the World, it was another word, but it was the same idea. We're, go- we're going to make the world better and better. Well, we're not going to do that. That comes from bad eschatology and bad homardiology. In other words, bad understanding of future things and a bad understanding of the sinfulness of man. So this, this uh, king, he's, it's a parable. We don't know who, who he is. The king represents God. And so this king wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 Talents. Let me just get the scripture up there. Verse 25, but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him and said, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. 10,000 talents. How much would that be? A year's salary? Nah, much more than that. At least in 16 years of wages, so the total annual revenue of Rome, that Rome collected from Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and Idumea was about 900 talents. That's the taxes they connected, collected. So 10,000 talents is just an enormous, enormous sum, not one you could pay back. That's the point. It is hy- hyperbolic. In the Old Testament, the amount of gold given for the temple was just over 8,000 talents. And the amount of gold which came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, 1 Kings 10.14. So 10,000 talents is probably more than most people would make in their lifetime. So it's what the point is, it's, an, it's a debt that can't be paid back. And so it's just an enormous, enormous number. And so what we read then, let me go back a couple of slides to when it's 26, so in verse 27, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt, released him from an obligation, forgave him, and that's afiemi, it's canceling the debt. And that's what we've seen. It's to completely release somebody from the debt. So the debt is canceled. The debt is is forgiven. Now, you would think that if you had had that much forgiven, then you would perhaps want to be gracious and kind to people who owed you money, but not in the parable. Jesus goes on to say, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
This is just a small amount. This is like going out and saying, oh, you owe me 10 bucks. And he lays hold of him and took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe. That's how a lot of us are when we want to hold somebody to the, to the, the, um, to accountability and not forgive them. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. But he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I also had compassion on you? So what we see here is is an illustration of what Jesus I mean, what Paul is writing in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32, is that we are to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. God is the master, and he has forgiven us everything at the cross, and so therefore we should also forgive others. So when the master in the parable found out about it, he was angry and delivered this one to the torturers. Now, that doesn't mean God is going to deliver us to the torturers, okay? But just the story. But there's consequences. The master was angry, delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And then Jesus says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. What he's saying is the analogy isn't that you're going to get whipped, but that God is going to discipline us. We'll come under divine discipline because God is trying to teach us things, and that's one of the ways in which we learn things. So we're to put aside these mental attitude sins. We are to... Focus on the cross and what God, for Christ's sake, has done for us. And as a result of that, then we are forgiven with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity that we have to come together this morning and just to look at these Passages that emphasize how gracious we are to be to others even when they are abusing us or have abused us, even when they are taking advantage of us, even when they are treating us in ways that are completely false and hurtful, damaging, and situations that are so bad that we can be resentful for the rest of our lives. But we are to set aside those sins, and we are to focus on you and upon your grace and upon your goodness. So, Father, we pray that we might come to understand this as part of what it means to be grace-oriented, to apply to others what you have done for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's never trusted Christ as Savior, anyone here who has never understood clearly that there's nothing that we can do to Uh, make up for our sinfulness, and that 
you provided the sacrifice to pay the penalty in our place. And that by trusting in Christ, who is called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And that when we put our focus and our attention upon him, then at that instant, when we trust in him, we are saved. We become a new creature in Christ, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to your mercy. So, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to any who is not saved. But, Father, the obligation we have as believers, as those who hope to be disciples, that we might forgive one another, forgive those in our path, setting aside whatever uh, sins, mental attitude sins or sins of the tongue that we may be committing, so that we can put our focus upon just showing grace and love to the person who certainly does not deserve it and leaving them in your hands to take care of the situation according to your omniscience and your righteousness and your justice. So, Father, we pray that we might use this, that as God the Holy Spirit is the one who produces love in our lives, and part of that is forgiveness, that as we walk by the Spirit and as we grow, we can see this fruit develop in our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.